Hello, and welcome to Sound and Image Lab, the Dolby Institute podcast. This is a show about how artists use technology to tell their stories, and I'm your host, Glenn Kaiser. Today we're wrapping up our special coverage of sound design for video games. My colleague Andy Vaughn once again speaks with some of the biggest innovators in the space. Today, the sound team from Gearbox Software. If you're not familiar with Gearbox, they are known for some of the most famous first-person shooter games, including Duke Nukem and Borderlands series, which once advertised over 1 billion guns in its latest installment, Borderlands 3. So how exactly does a team design the sound for so many different kinds of weaponry? Today, Andy speaks with Gearbox's audio director, Mark Petty, and the associate director of sound design, Brian Feaser, to find out. Hi, everybody. This is Andy Vaughn with Dolby Games, and today we're joined by the folks from Gearbox. We have both Brian Feaser and Mark Petty with us. Mark, why don't we start with you? Can you tell us where you've been, what you've done, and, and how you got to where you are? Yeah, hi, I'm Mark Petty. I'm the audio director for Gearbox Software. Um, I've been with Gearbox in June. It'll be 16 years. Um, uh, my my upbringing was uh, in music. I uh, was a music engineer for a lot of years before I got into games. Um, uh, it, it was kind of ha- happenstance. Uh, I had a client that was doing a record and he happened to be the original audio director for Gearbox. And uh, at the time they were working on Brothers in Arms Road to Hill 30, which was the first installment of the original IP for Gearbox. Um, and I, uh, we started talking one day and he's like, hey, I need some sound design help. Um, I know you've done, I've done some TV post stuff in the, in the past. And um, so I said, yeah, that sounds super interesting. Uh, so uh, I ended up contracting on that game for eight months uh, and uh, it did well. And I left and went back to music. And then in 2006, uh, um, he ended up uh, going to do other things and wanted to know if I could get him through a couple of milestones. And um, so I came in and did that work and then ended up hiring on as a sound designer and uh, then just kind of worked through um, understanding uh, how sort of the production background that I had communicated to games. Um, the, the, the thing that was really interesting to me is, um, is, is games just was such a learning curve in terms of implementation and um, uh, and iteration and all those kinds of things. And so, uh, it was, it was kind of a, a cool stepping stone at the time because I had been doing music for a long time and, and, and I was kind of looking for something uh, different. So, um, uh, and I really loved playing games, I played doom and quake and, um, and, and got really into all that. So, uh, so yeah, it was just a natural progression and, uh, uh Gearbox has been a great company of, like I said, I've been with them almost 16 years, um, and we've, we've built a great team, and uh, yeah, so that's kind of where I've come from. Yeah, Quake is a, is a gateway title for both of us, as it turns out, Mark. Yeah, yeah, for sure. <laughs> Brian, how about you? Um, how did you get to Gearbox? Yeah, I got a little bit of a Quake tie-in there as well. Um, it started off kind of in the modding scene, uh, if people remember those days. Um that's kind of how I got into the industry in general is just, uh, started out doing mods, doing sound design for mods. And that's kind of how I cut my teeth with sound design. Uh, and that was like 17, 18 years ago, uh, back in the quake two days is when I first started that stuff. Uh, and I just loved it. You know, it was, it was a hobby of mine, passion of mine. Um, so I just kept plugging away at it, uh, absorbing as much information as I could. 
Um, and that led to uh, some connections, uh, some uh, mod mates, I guess you could call them, people that worked on the mods with me, uh, getting hired up uh, at a studio that's no longer around called Terminal Reality. Um, and that was my first industry, I guess, on-site industry gig. Um, started as a sound designer there. Um, you know, I was there for seven and a half years before going to Microsoft. Um, spent about three and a half years at Microsoft and 343. Uh, and then uh, hopped over to Gearbox. And I've been at Gearbox for five and a half years now. Um, and I'm currently the uh, Associate Director of Sound Design at Gearbox. Uh, and it's been it's been a blast. This is like out of the, the 18 years that I've been doing this, um, I'm having the most fun uh, at Gearbox. Excellent. Well, it's it's a fun place. We've toured the studio a couple of times now, and and I have to say that is a mind blowing studio you guys have. Can can you tell us a little bit about the the construction and your and your main kind of master mix room that you use? Uh, yeah. So um, when I originally joined Gearbox, uh, we were in a different building, um, and in 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 typical fa uh, fashion that. It was kind of makeshift offices that were turned into uh, control rooms. We didn't have a Foley space um, uh, except for setting up small little pits or some kind of just recording things in our control room, but uh, just slapping stuff on the wall and, and putting bass traps in. Um, so when uh, they started to build this building, um, uh, they were gracious enough to let me get heavily involved in, um, in the design of it. Myself and um, an acoustician named Kevin Hughes uh, kind of put the place together. Uh, and it's uh, six control rooms that are all um, exactly the same format. Uh, I wanted to make sure that the monitoring environment was 100% consistent across all designers. And then we also built a Foley stage that uh, has four pits in it, has visual playback for sync to picture. And that place is really paid off in, in just huge dividends. Um, the amount of content that we've been able to build over the years uh, for our own personal library uh, and getting away from the commercial libraries as much um, has been great. Um, I think one of the things that I struggled with early was I really wanted to be able to um, start from a place of organics. Like I wanted to be able to uh, articulate sound in a way that fit picture. And the only real way to do that was to be able to perform those things uh, live and, in order to not only get it uh, to articulate with regard to timing and action, but but also to to have the same sort of dynamics and sound and feel that that uh, I think we all wanted uh, as we moved forward. Um, all the rooms are tied together via Dante. Um, uh, during uh, about halfway through Borderlands Three, we took one of the control rooms and converted it to an Atmos room. Uh, it's discrete seven one four. And we started sort of our foray into Atmos uh, with Borderlands 3 and mixed Borderlands 3 and Atmos and have been working with that format ever since. Um, and it's, uh, it's been an amazing opportunity uh, to just explore the, the, the spatial uh, additives that, um, that Atmos brings and the level of detail and the immersion that you can get from it. Um, but uh, yeah, Gearbox has been super supportive of audio um, and uh, the facility that we've built out. I wish I wish I could just like take the camera and take everybody on a tour, but <laughs> um, but but it's it's a, it's a great it's a great facility. That was one of the things that really impressed me whenever I visited Gearbox. Um, 
I, I don't think a lot of studios have the luxury of having the types of facilities that Gearbox does. Uh, and even coming from a place like Microsoft where, you know, the, there are good facilities there. Um, the facilities at Gearbox were on a completely different level and almost like you, you could almost tell that like it, it, it was built out of like a, 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 a philosophy of the audio department, right? Like this is a staple. This is a thing that we are going to do and encourage. Um, it was, I, I, I was blown away. I had no idea uh, that Gearbox had that, you know, those types of facilities and just kind of supported that environment. Yeah, I think we're blown away on our side too. We we see we get to see a lot of studios, but when we walked into yours, we could tell that there was a real dedication to a, a having a space that let you create and and build as you wanted to. So it's an amazing room. I wish I could drag everybody uh, with me on the next tour, Mark, but again, can't do that. So we'll just have to talk about it. Well, so okay, with this dedicated space, you clearly create, as you said, a lot of your own assets and a lot of your own audio um, audio clips and files. It seems like. That's almost, I won't say a luxury, but that seems like that's a competitive advantage when you're building a game, especially one like yours that, you know, leans on on post-apocalyptic themes um, and really kind of forces you to, to, to look at audio as sounds that don't exist in the real world quite yet. What's that process like? I mean, there's there's a couple of different stages, I think, in that process. There are a couple of different beginnings. Um, it could stem from, you know, syncing up with cross-discipline uh, with other departments, um, designers, creative designers, concept artists, and whatnot, to chat with them just to kind of get a feel and a vibe of uh, what, what a particular thing might sound like or like what their intent is uh, behind this thing. Um, and then experimentation, right? Like having the Foley room just right down, you know, a couple of rooms down, you can just get up, walk in there, start playing around, mess with some props, um, just start recording. And that usually leads to a lot of uh, creative inspiration. film world like a lot of times you don't have uh the, the time frame to do that right like you're um you're on a tight uh, uh timeline so being able to just experiment and play with new things like that that's a lot of the creative process um but in particular for borderlands 3 i would say uh looking at things like we we treated a lot of the the major areas of the games as protagonists, basically. So weapons were characters, right? All the different weapons were characters on their own. Uh, and that meant that they all needed their own sort of identity, right? They needed their own signature and, and sonic palette. Uh, and so isolating uh, a particular weapon and breaking it down of like, okay, um, what is this thing? How does it function, right? Like, how does it even work? Um, it's not a thing that exists in the real world. So you sort of have, you sort of have to be creative and like, okay, well, maybe it has some stuff internally that's, you know, cycling the mechanisms or whatever. Um, and you start to build a, a palette based out of those things, right? Like the, um, we'll go with the, uh, uh, the Hyperions as an example, like the technology there was supposed to be at, at its time, like a futuristic technology, but for the timeline of the game, it's more of a, hey, remember when VCRs were the future, right? So it's this like future, but like dated tech. 
Um, and it was centered around like a lot of uh, sort of construction and power tools um, because the lore behind it was that uh, that's how that tech started. It started out as they were using it for construction or mining or something like that. And then it got built into being weaponry, like it got weaponized, right? Um, so we literally started out like recording a bunch of power tools um, and using, um, you know, drills like battery power drills uh, to take the battery out and put it back in for reload sounds and just um, starting out like just building out a big pallet uh, and keeping everything consistent within that pallet. Um, and we we take that approach per manufacturer, so they all sound they all sound uh, different, but they all have their like cohesive sort of character across them. One of the things about the facilities and all of that kind of stuff, like the, the, the mindshare behind it was really about creating a place where um, neither space nor technology got in the way of creativity. Um, and that, that doesn't mean that we go out and buy all the gear. Uh, what that means is that we wanted rooms that gave you, um, that gave you usable and correct information or as much information as, as we could get out of them. Um, but also that uh, even adopting Dante and the rooms tying together and being able to record no matter where you are in another space um, meant that there was enough flexibility there that uh, if people came up with an idea, they could record it in their control room or they could patch to the Foley room and they could record it there. Like, um, and being able to collect props over time and all the things that film has been doing a long time. But, but um, I think it's, you know, it's, it's a luxury, especially in games, to have uh, those kinds of uh, things at your disposal. Um, a lot of people say, you know, talk about, well, you know, you build these things because it sounds good. Well, it's not because it sounds good. It's because, um, it's because we want to understand the answers to the questions as quickly as we can. We want to understand um, the frequency spectrum and the dynamic range and all of those things as quickly as we can because it makes us faster at our jobs and, and also makes us more precise at the, at the decisions that we're making to be corrective. Um, and so, uh, so yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of a building process from the ground up, you know, uh, having to fight tech, having to fight acoustics, having to fight those things um, can sometimes really bog down uh, sort of the end point, you know, of, of just creating good stuff. One of the things I forgot to mention, actually, is a part of that process, too, starts with uh, on, on paper, basically. We uh, we would build uh, what we called style guides um, for every single manufacturer. And, you know, not just with the weapons. Like, we carried that across creatures and enemies and whatnot, too. Um, but writing down on paper, like, you know, building a little chart of, like, this is what this thing is. This is what it sounds like. Uh, and using descriptors and, like, you know, different pieces of creative information there. And then right next to it, this is what it is not, right? This is like, don't do this. Don't use these things. Um, that way you can literally line them all up. Like you can take all the weapons, all the weapon manufacturers and line up all the style guides right next to each other and like scroll through them and just go, okay, well, th this sounds like this thing. And it doesn't sound like this thing because this gun has these characteristics. This gun can't. Right. Um, so a lot of that process like literally started on on paper. That approach has helped us uh, be able to align uh, a number of designers at a time. Like everybody has that same documentation to look at. So everybody's on the same page. Uh, and to go one step further, uh, getting in early with the palettes and the design documentation um, and having those reviews with 
the creative director of the project itself, uh, as well as people on the weapons team or external teams, um, has allowed us to, to be more in sync with, uh, with what those folks have in their head. Because even though they may not necessarily specialize in audio, uh, like everybody has sort of a, an image, you know, of, of or, or a, a sound that they're hearing in their head. Uh, sometimes communicating that sound from other departments is hard because they don't do audio speak every day. Um, and being able to put that stuff in front of them in paper format, as well as send them concepts of palettes, um, even if the asset doesn't exist, just based on art, uh, is a great communication method because they're able to say, no, man, it just doesn't have enough weight or it, it, I, don't, I don't hear the, the sort of rusty mechanics of this or those kinds of things. Like it's easier to have those conversations. So it, it, it makes uh, the process makes, I think, the game more cohesive in the end because you don't have a disconnect, as much of a disconnect between the art or the visual and, uh, and what we do on the audio side. Yeah, and it, it also really set us up and put us in a good position. So we had all of the tools and all of the information in front of us to just tackle the sound design. Uh, and there was a there was a moment, a couple of moments during the development of Borderlands Three, where we had final shippable weapon audio before the art was even final and done because of that process and that collaboration. I imagine you had to get an early start on weapons. Borderlands 3 is a game with, is it a billion guns? <laughs> bazillion. <laughs> a bazillion guns. So you have a bazillion guns. You have a bazillion different weapons that you have to characterize and make different from each other and, and define what they are and what they're not. That seems like it's a gigantic process as you're rolling into a new game. Can you tell me a little bit about how you deal with that quantity of weapon sounds? I will say one of the things that helped out tremendously like right from the get-go was having really good debug tools um and i think that's the thing that gets overlooked per, you know quite a bit um in uh, in our industry uh like having the ability to spawn any kind of combination of gun that i want and like i can open a menu and literally pick whatever parts that i want to spawn for this gun because again, all the guns are built modularly, right? They're all individual separate parts. So if I wanted to open up, you know, the menu and build a doll assault rifle with this particular barrel, but this grip and like nothing else, you know, it's a couple of clicks. Um, and then every gun also has a, um, a serial number, like every build configuration like generates a serial number. So if I want to spawn that again later, I can just copy that serial number, paste it right and it spawns. Um, so debugging uh, and being able to generate and spawn um, whatever kind of com combination I wanted on the fly uh, was super useful um, because you know you're you're spot on. Like there's a bazillion guns. There's uh, almost an endless amount of different combinations of audio that can be built um, and you know come together uh, because we do support a sound per part of the weapon. So. You know, if the if there's three different barrels for a particular gun, like there's three different 
uh, at least three different sets of sounds that go with those individual barrels. There, there was a lot of, I think, isolating and dissecting, um, well, what do we want this part to do like, sonically? Like, what is the barrel? What does that do? What does that sound like? Um, and coming up with those definitions, right? Like, so saying like the muzzle is more of your, your you know, your mid to high snap and your barrel is more of your like low, uh, mid to low thump. Um, and how do those line up? Right. And in terms of uh, transient and how do those play against all of the other parts, like the mechanisms that are cycling, like what's the cadence there? Um, so a lot of that starts in the DAW, right? You know, just building it in the DAW and looking at timing uh, and building it in a way that accounts for that modularity. Um, obviously, you know, 10 years ago, you, it was pretty common to just uh, build a single one-off, like one-shot gunshot that had all of the components built into it. Um, but in a game like Borderlands 3, where we're going with a modular weapon system, like you can't, there's no, there's no other way uh, to support that endless amount, almost endless amount of combinations other than building it in individual little pieces. Um, so it was a big change in mindset and approach um, that we, uh, we had to adopt um, and also educate uh, the rest of the department. I'm like, Hey, here's how we build guns now. Um, at least for this, this system anyway. Um, but at the end of the day, like there, 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 I don't think that there was, uh, any other way to get around it. Right. And, and to support that sort of like a system like that. I mean, and that, and that philosophy, because of the way that Borderlands has built that philosophy of modularity, uh, expanded past, uh, weapons. Um, we used it for projectiles and explosions and those types of things. Um, it creates uh, more dynamics and a greater set of variation um, without having to commit to canned um, uh, buckets of content. Instead of creating 27 uh, uh, one shots of a of a gunshot, you know, you can create four or five variations of these individual parts, and then they just mix and match and play. Uh, and we can control them through RTPCs uh, to define. Um, volume and pitch and those kinds of things. So, um, so those are also working in the background to to sort of help uh, with the the, the freshness uh, of every time somebody grabs a mod or grabs a weapon um, or that weapon upgrades. Uh, so, yeah, it's it's it worked out to be um, kind of the perfect solution for uh, that style of game. The amount of time you spend shooting weapons in a Borderlands game, it it's a lot, right? Like and shooting a lot. So um, it it, it kind of like Mark was saying, like it it adds an amount of uh, variation which cuts back in the repetition. Um, if you if we were to just design, you know, a canned one shot sound for you know like a Jacob's pistol or something. Um, and then that's, you know, you only heard that subset of sounds, like those five sounds, regardless of what uh, combination of parts you had for that Jacob's pistol, and that would get pretty repetitive, right? With the amount of times that you're like, you're shooting your weapon. Um, so it's, it's a way to like always kind of keep it fresh. And like, every time you pick up a gun, like it sounds like a, it sounds a little bit different. Some of the uh, differences might be a little subtle, like Mark was saying, um, just shifting RTPCs around uh, to like maybe make it sound a little more accurate or something. You smell like death. Come closer. Here we go! Hope you know what you're in for, Gunslinger. 
but it's it's like it's a freshness right like it, it's it's avoiding the repetition like you pick up a new gun it sounds different pick up a new gun sounds different and that's kind of the core loop of the borderlands games like promotion of always picking up new loot like we want you to to grab some new guns because new stuff is spawning all the time um so it it's almost an incentive right to uh, try a new gun out um just the the sonic experience and the sonic presence of it gotcha uh, well you know a bazillion it's still stuck in my head though that gun shoot must have been again you know long stare inducing but that must have been a whole different way to approach a gun shoot to know that you were going into that many different sounds for weapons in this game were you able to reuse past recording efforts or did you go in fresh and just record everything new uh, it was a it was a combination um i mean honestly the godsend was um the fact that uh, we have a good set of field recording gear internally anyway and uh and we live in texas so um so there's lots of people with lots of guns and lots of places lots of space so outside of the the formal gun shoots that we did um which was really only one um large formal gun shoot uh we did a whole lot of like side shoots uh, here locally just us um and some of that was experimentation some of that was filling holes um we kind of were learning as we were going about uh, where we needed more content, where we needed um, different types of content, different perspectives, uh, different tales, um, those kinds of things. And we would go out and um, and do those shoots. It was funny because uh, for the, the fully end of the weapons, uh, we ended up just sending out an internal email blast and said, hey, like anybody who has guns or is a sort of a gun enthusiast, we're going to be recording fully. And we expected to get a couple of email responses. We got like over 50. And um, and we had we we did like two to three weeks worth of solid, just eight hour day recordings of people bringing in their weapons, uh, you know, breach, clip, um, uh, dry fires, all sorts of things, handling. Um, so it was it, we built a huge library of gun foley out of that. Uh, but, it, you know, a lot of it was was kind of just internally sourced. Uh, we even took those folks out um, and did some shoots on our own with them. Uh, just and and it was it was a great, an amazing learning experience for us because it, it enabled us to um, take the knowledge that we had gained from the first shoot, move it to the second shoot, make adjustments, make adjustments, make adjustments as we went um, to the point to where we became much more adapted. Uh, recording weapons and um, because they're hard, I think out of anything to record, like weapons are super hard to record. Um, uh, and not only from the, the actual mic placement and the technical of the shoot itself, but also the post-processing and understanding how to deal with um, with background noise and all the other things that play a part, you know, in those shoots. But uh, but yeah, it was it was an ongoing process all the way through. Yeah, and that um, that big response that we got uh, actually let us be selective, right? And then it kind of went back to the style guides uh, that we had written. So like looking at a Jacobs as an example, like it being like your, you know, quote unquote, Western style gun where it's woods and metals. Um, with that, uh, that turnout of weaponry, we were able to go, oh, okay, like, well, this individual has, you know, these three to five guns and like they they fit the description that we wrote up of the Jacobs, right? They they have this like, you know, westerny sort of 
feel to them. They're heavier, they're bigger metals, um, wood and like hammers that cock back and stuff like that. So we got to, you know, sort of put the categorize these weapons into, into buckets that fit what the manufacturer style guides, um, were that we had written up. And then, uh, we took that same approach, uh, you know, the sort of call to arms email, uh, that Mark was describing, we took that same approach to supplement the weapons, um, with other things like the, uh, like the Hyperion, they have a big, uh, servo type of presence. And that's a big part of their characters. When you reload a Hyperion, like you can hear the servo winding and like recharging the magazine and pulling it you know, back into, uh, the magwell. Um, so same thing, like we send an email out, like, Hey, we're looking for like servo-y small motor things. Does anyone have like cameras or old cameras or, you know, whatever, like we, we would send up, send out uh, some descriptions, descriptions of what we're looking for. And same thing, like got a big overwhelming response. People started bringing in all of their stuff that they thought, you know, maybe sounded servo-y or had a small motor in it. And I'll, I still remember this one. This was probably one of the most unique ones is there, uh, somebody had a, like a self-cleaning litter box for a cat. <laughs> gently used <laughs> and uh <laughs> and uh but it actually had a, a great servo sound to it um and uh that was a way for us to like to help share our craft with you know the rest of the company and help edu educate them a little bit on what we do because we would bring them into the foley room right with their uh, litter box or whatever it was, um, and have them perform it a couple of times just to show them like, you know, this is how, this is what we do. Like, this is how we capture content and this is why. Um, and yeah, so we, uh, you know, we took that approach across, you know, more things than, than just weapons. Um, that was a lot of fun. Please tell me that person got a game credit, like name litter box. The, the cat did. <laughs> Good enough. <laughs> Go ahead, Mark. <laughs> yeah, all I was going to say is, um, you know, it was, uh, I can't say enough about what that process did for just, um, I guess, taking audio, which sometimes is a black box to other disciplines and folks within the games, games uh, space and uh, opening their eyes and opening um, sort of opportunities there. And I think people were just super excited about understanding more and uh, about what we do and uh, also being a part of that. Um, even if it is like, Hey, that's my litter box, you know, uh, when you're playing the game, like, like those things are fun. Um, uh, so it's, it's, you know, and it, going even one step further, like that creates somewhat of a, a sort of mind share with the rest of the studio to where when they're creating their assets, um, they don't feel, uh, like there is that barrier between them and audio. Like they're, they're like, Oh, you know, well, I worked with those guys on this thing. Like, I wonder if they'd do this thing and they'll reach out and we'll have conversations about that. Like it's, it's just, uh, it's a more, um, unified effort. Um, and it's great to, uh, get everybody involved in that outside of audio. Yeah. It's interesting to hear, you know, when you speak to audio teams, you commonly hear that audio comes last in the game and it, it, it can feel like an afterthought or it comes after plot and character, but it seems like, this is a way to break down that barrier between teams and get them to think about the audio as they're building the game. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, you know, Brian and I um, have been working on that sort of model uh, for a long time. Um, and it's, it's baby steps. You know, you keep including people. Um, you, you may not work with the same person twice, uh, but you, you keep 
looping people in and bringing people into the fold. <clears throat> and over time, uh, it becomes a culture. And that culture is really what we're trying to create. We're trying to create a place where people um, understand more about audio and are excited about audio. And when they're making those paper designs, when I'm an artist, I'm making this paper design and I'm, I'm putting these uh, these drawings together and, and getting all the documentation, um, maybe that person now, because they were involved in that uh, fully recording, uh, maybe they're thinking about audio more. Um, maybe they're thinking about ideas about audio. Maybe uh, it breaks down the barrier of them reaching out and, um, and also helps them to understand that um, there are no stupid ideas. And just because you're not an audio person, like we want your feedback. We want to understand what you hear in your head because it's important that that vision is as much part of yours as it is ours. Um, so uh, that level of inclusion spurs that, that uh, all of that communication to happen earlier. Um, and and it's, it's, you know, it grows every time, every game, every title. Um, uh, and, you know, we just keep pushing forward. Yeah. And it's, it's working. Um, literally, uh, last week, um, I had a concept artist send me a message and said, Hey, I was, uh, boiling a pot of water for some rice and it, and it was creaking and, you know, kind of groaning, um, which is, that's a little weird. That's never happened to me before when I boiled rice, but, uh, nonetheless, uh, shot me a message and said, um, uh, it, it sounded to me almost like a submarine, like underwater, maybe, you know, decompressing or something. Um, and they, this person actually recorded with their phone, right. Which is, that's fine. Recorded the sound of it, um, sent it my way. And then they also went the extra mile to grab some free, uh, uh, audio software and pitched it down just to be like, this is what I was like creatively hearing when I, when I say submarine underwater and like, it does, it, it's, it does. It sounds like a submarine kind of like groaning, but, um, that, I mean, that, that's sort of proof that, you know, what, what we're doing is catching on. Um, and it's getting them to think in that sort of creative space. Uh, I would have been impressed, you know, alone just by that sort of creative and critical thinking of, of sound, just sitting there listening to the pot of boiling water, like that, you know, that's impressive enough, let alone recording it with their phone, right. To send my way. Um, but you know, it, it just sort of shows that like the, the approach that we're taking here is catching on. Um, and you know, it's becoming uh, super beneficial for uh, us, uh, but also like the the rest of the um, the company, right? Cross discipline. Um, this was a concept artist, right? That that was doing this. Um, so you know, in turn, like now when they're sketching, right, and they're they're thinking up um, visual ideas for a thing, like they also now have audio in mind, uh, and that's going to benefit us, you know, down the line. Yeah, it sounds like it's a path to a better game when everybody at least understands the mission of each team and can contribute as they're creating. It, it probably gives you a, a better style guide at the end, right? Yeah, absolutely. Because um, so, they're in that headspace now, right? So they they can almost talk the audio lingo, so to speak. Gotcha. Well, okay. We spent a lot of time on guns. I'll see if I can get off those now. Let's let's talk a little bit about the environment. You have, you know, a really well, a unique environment um, in in, border, in the Borderlands franchise. That cell shaded look, that gigantic open world that takes you into really crazy and unexpected places. That's a lot of ambience to manage. Um, how do you deal with that? A lot of the, at least in the Borderlands franchise, uh, it's it's always been. Um, probably 
the forefront of that presentation has been more musically based uh, in terms of mix and things like that. Um, and we've always worked with the composers to make sure that uh, the style guides uh, and the communication is about environment and about the creatures that are involved in those environments, um, whether that be <clears throat> distilled down to things like, hey, this is all like green, organic and lush, um, or this feels like a swamp or this feels very high tech, like using those is just the, the high level bullet points and then um, moving down from there. But when it comes to uh, sound design, um, we always we always look for uh, opportunities to bring things forward, push things back within that music scape, um, whether that be uh, rain on different surfaces or um, uh, we have a system that understands where all the trees are and uh, can take and place birds in those trees at height appropriate um, level and uh, looking for those level of details just to sort of creep in and be just a part of that soundscape with music. Um, uh, we're, we're working on new systems to revise uh, those things because we want a greater, greater level of detail, especially as everybody pushes into more of sort of open environments and, and more open world, more places to explore like being a part of that um, from a sound design perspective, because you can't at that point uh, with that amount of time to wander around uh, trying to support that with, with static music uh, over time, it, it, it gets redundant and it's, it's hard to, uh, it's hard to create freshness and um, spontaneity and dynamics that way, uh, at least for us. Um, so, uh, so yeah, it's, it's, it's really about sort of picking our moments and uh and or it has been picking our moments and and understanding uh where we want music forward where we want music back where we want sound design in where we want sound design out and okay you know because there's so much combat in borderlands too um it takes some of that focus away from the environment uh you know because it's heavy gunplay uh heavy call outs uh, lots of dialogue those kinds of things yeah, you mentioned dialogue. It, it, there's a story behind every uh, every character in the game too, and it seems like that's a fundamentally important part of the, of, of gameplay. Understanding who these characters are, where they're coming from, and where they stand in this landscape of uh, of, of chaos. Um, you know, again, there's there's a lot of competition for the audio elements in that game. Do you deal with those differently now? Have you have you changed the way you deal with that competition between dialogue and combat in Borderlands? As we've moved forward, even from Borderlands 3, like we've started looking at um, sort of the, the culture or the philosophy that we were talking about before, becoming better embedded with narrative and having those conversations about uh, mostly moments that are happening where dialogue may play while a moment is happening uh, with sound design. Uh, is that the composition or the arrangement we want of that scene? Uh, do we want to delay... Uh, the dialogue by X or play the dialogue before to let that moment happen. Um, uh, really about storytelling. You know, how do we want to tell that story? Uh, is it, should it be a hundred percent narrative? Should it be um, in that moment, a hundred percent sound design? Um, you know, what does the player want to hear and, and what sort of achieves the goal the best that we can and the cleanest that we can um, because it can get cluttered. It can get cluttered at times. Uh, no, I mean, I think Mark nailed it uh, with everything he said. Um, a lot of it is, you know, that delicate dance of uh, timing and cadence. Um, and it can be a struggle, you know, at times. 
uh, which, with the amount of uh, dialogue that plays um, and different types of dialogue, right? There's, you know, all of the combat stuff and then the, the narrative stuff to tell the story and push the story along. Um, and then there's little, you know, side pieces like the, the echo logs that you can, you can collect and whatnot. Um, so, you know, some of it is about treating that dialogue against itself, like against each other, the different, you know, levels of dialogue. Like how do we, uh, how do we treat the, uh, the, the narrative stuff that like is being fed directly to you and into your head and how do how do we process that, um, versus like the, the battle stuff that's happening out on the battlefield, uh, versus like, oh, I picked up like an echo log. And so what does that sound like? And, um, so approaching those creatively, um, with a little bit, uh, taking a little bit of a different approach to those creatively, I think helps, um, sort of make it feel a little bit less just everything's dialogue all the time. Um, which translates, uh, you know, better into the mix, uh, across the board in general. Got you. Uh, you know, you mentioned feeding a lot of this directly into people's heads and it's, it's one of those things that we're wrestling with on this side too, that, that competition between, you know, open play, you know, open audio in your room, like audio off of your television or off of your home theater system versus headphones as well. How much does that have a bearing on how you design going in or do you design separately for both of those endpoints? No, we don't. Um, we don't design differently. I will say that, that the, um, since we started mixing uh, in 714 on Borderlands 3, uh, we started to change sort of our, our approach to um, content creation um, in the sense that uh, it's no longer the, the typical um, let's think about this in uh, the horizontal plane because it will only always play there, be that headphones or uh, left, right, or, you know, even five, one or seven, one um, with the addition of heights, like it begs the question of, you know, now should we record um, ambiences in binaural, you know, uh, whether that be quad or, or up second order. Um, uh, what about weapon tails? What about, um, what about birds? What about environmental sounds? What about rain? What about like, how should we, how should we adjust? Not because the intent is to always play those things in 714 or have heights, but, um, to give ourselves the flexibility to be able to have discrete content. Um, because ultimately what kills things is having to up mix all the time and you run into phase issues, um, not having that discrete information for the channels um, uh, causes all sorts of things when you start to fold down. So um, so I think, I think that's the biggest thing that has been an adjustment for us uh, in looking at, at headphones. And I, I mentioned headphones because, uh, you know, uh, even though there's the, uh, the Atmos headphone renderer and the other... Um, the other DSP-based sort of uh, spatialization uh, renders out there for headphones. Um, still, like that content, if it's if it feels um, if it feels out of place, indiscreet, like it's it's not going to fold down well. Um, so, you know, thinking about things from a different way when we're um, when we're designing, and you know, for that matter, you know, training the other designers to think a different way when they're. Uh, looking to record content and looking to put content together. Uh, is this a shield sound that uh, happens once in the game and when you grab that shield, it, it creates this bubble and envelops you? 
well, if you, if it if that happens, like maybe we should do something there to support the height information. Maybe there's a way to break that down. Um, but that starts at the at the the content creation level. Um, like originally, I think for Borderlands Three, because we got Atmos later, we weren't thinking in that vein as much, and it became more about mix issues and ways to dissect and move things around uh, in the post production phase. Um, but uh, again, like I think that the, the the best way to communicate those things is is to start with the content creation itself. Okay, it sounds like you still are thinking all the way through the game. What does the player need to hear? Um, and no matter how they're playing, it's 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 really a challenge to figure out the most important piece of information to put in front of them. How do you make that decision? I mean, I, you know, there's so many variables there. Uh, like, is it a sound that the player hears a thousand times during the game? Is it a player that the uh, is it a sound that the player only hears once? Um, what kind of information does this communicate? Um, is it on the critical path, and is it something that uh, is critical for the player to understand? Um, and that changes not only the approach to, to how it's mixed, but how it's created. You know, obviously, if it's something that plays a thousand times. Like you don't want that thing to be um, uh, to feel redundant over time and feel fatiguing. Um, so maybe that's maybe that sound is a little more rounded or smaller um, in size. Uh, something that is uh, cuts through the mix really well, but is somewhat inconspicuous with regard to. Um, uh, just the way that it approaches you every time. It's something that you hear, but it's not something that's fatiguing. Um, it's, you know, and it's really about game design. Um, a lot of those guys will dictate, you know, hey, this is truly an important system. This is tr a truly important piece of information. Um, how do we support that? And we do run through the same process with that as we do with uh, with weapons or anything else. Like we sit down, we talk about the UI, we talk about how we want to approach it, what that needs to feel like. Uh, is it fantasy-based? Is it sci-fi-based? Is it uh, more mechanical? Is it uh, hard transient? Is it soft and pillowy? Uh, all those descriptors go into those uh, those design approaches. And, um, and then we start uh, putting in temp content based upon that from the palettes and looking at that and reviewing that and seeing as we're playing, even looking at other things, um, like what sticks out to you, you know, what, what feels uh, arduous over time. Um, I think that part of it, uh, the, the HUD and UI stuff, uh, is one of the harder things because of the fact that it is often repetitive. Um, like you, you can't really give variation because it's obviously got to be something iconic that, that they know when that, that, that fires, it means this. Um, so it's, uh, it's, it's, it's kind of something that happens. Well, it's not kind of, it is, it's something that happens over the course of time throughout the entire, uh, development cycle. Yeah. And there's, um, there's a, I think a layer two of not only like what is the most important uh, piece of information for the player at the time, but also what, it, what do we want the player to feel in this moment? Um, and asking ourselves those questions, um, you know, and delivering that response is difficult. And like there, there's some hard lessons learned from just Borderlands 3 uh, that we've carried into uh, Wonderlands, um, trying to correct those lessons. Um, and an example of that would be, you know, like Mark was saying with the repetition, right? When you take damage, uh, initially in Borderlands 3, like we wanted that to be sort of a visceral experience, right? We wanted the player to feel... Uh, in danger, uh, and so we we sold the you know the response to that sonically, um, 
by doing a, a sort of system, like a tiered system of damage, uh, damage sounds. So like, you know, tiny, small, medium, large, huge, uh, and it would scale versus, you know, based off of various conditions and whatnot. But when you took a lot of damage, we wanted you to feel it. Like we wanted the player to feel in danger and vulnerable. And we pushed that sonically. Now lesson learned, uh, is when you get towards the end of the game, right? Like post game, like you've already finished the game and you're playing it through a second time. Uh, your character, your, your, um, the, the level that you're at, uh, is completely different than the level that you started at, right? You're not, you're no longer a level one character where, you know, taking a lot of damage might be a big deal. Like you've got a lot of, you know, experience and a lot of health and shield and everything. Uh, so you might be in a situation where you're taking a lot of damage all the time. Um, and, uh, yeah, we ran into that. So, and what that, the side effect of that was that, you know, when we're, when we're pushing this sound sonically and like, we, we want the player to feel this, um, and then you're feeling it all the time in the post game world. Uh, that was definitely a lesson learned where we're like, okay, we, you know, something that we maybe didn't completely, uh, think all the way through to the end. Uh, what's a lesson that we can, we can take away from that. So we can either a fix it and correct it. Uh, in a patch or be carried into our next projects. Got yeah. Um, okay. Well, you know, you talk about the carryaways here. It takes a very long time to build a video game. Um, as a Borderlands three player, I definitely feel it when I'm taking a lot of damage and that's always memorable to me in this game. But you know, to you guys, you spent forever building this content. What are some of the most memorable bits to you? What's, what's a scene that you, you still love? Um, what's the sound you still love? It can be as small as the cat box I'd imagine or as big as, you know, the way an, an entire room sounds? Uh, well, I, honestly, it, they always crack me up in, in BL3. The um, the speak and spell stuff um, that we did for um, for the weapons that uh, when you have to reload it, you throw the weapon and uh, it hits the ground, it bounces, and it doesn't ow, 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 ow. <laughs> Like stuff like that to me uh, always cracked me up, and I loved that presentation. Um, it was super fun. Uh, um, outside of that, uh, man, there's so many like small things um, that speak to me throughout the game, uh, which is what one of the things that I enjoy about that franchise is. It's oftentimes not about something that's necessarily a single moment and iconic as much as it is just about a flavor. You know what I mean? Um, just a little layer that sits on top that, that moves through the world uh, when you're shooting a weapon or, or interacting with something. Um, uh, yeah, the, that, that was the first thing that came to mind, though. Brian, you got a favorite in the, in, in the list, or are you still kind of combing through the thousands out there? Yeah, I mean, it's like it's such a blur, right? There's, there's so much stuff. There's so much content in that game and so much good content, too. Um, that I feel like a lot of the, a lot of the content that I'm actually thinking of currently is centered in the Wonderlands universe versus the Borderlands three universe. Um, I do like kind of like Mark was mentioning the sort of like, you can go from having this really visceral, you know, serious uh, experience in uh, Borderlands three to all of a sudden hearing, you know, a speak and spell say ow or hey or something like that um or you know crying as you throw it away 
Um, and so it's always toying with your emotions, right? Like you, you go in this moment of like, ah, oh, I'm in combat and like everything is super serious and like, oh, okay, now it's funny. Um, so it's always sort of like up and down. And an example of that, I, I remember uh, playing um, one of the, like one of the beginning levels, right? Just running through and just sort of doing some testing and listening, listening to uh, the updates sonically and uh, shooting one of the skag pups uh, actually made a puppy like yelping sound. And I was like, Ooh, my heart, you know, like <laughs> that got me a little bit, uh, you know, cause I'm a dog person and like hearing, you know, that, that puppy cry, I was like, Oh, I kind of feel, I kind of feel bad for it, but now I don't because there's 30 of them trying to eat my face. Um, <laughs> that was, uh, you know, it was such a small sound, but like it, it, but it played to me, you know, it, it, play, it, it hit me in the feels. Gotcha. Well, it's incredibly effective. Um, again, as a player, I think that the moments of humor and the moments of hitting me in the feels are both, you know, pretty, uh, pretty important to me in playing that game and it keeps it alive for me. So I think, uh, you know, to, to kind of wrap things up, I think it's an amazing game. I think you guys have done amazing work. I'm looking forward to what you do next. And, uh, yeah, I, I'd imagine you'll bring as much, uh, as much humor and as much character to the next title. Yeah. We're, uh, we're excited about, uh, Tidy Tina's Wonderlands. Um, uh, that's going to be a lot of fun. I've had a lot of fun playing it, uh, during development. Uh, I found myself while trying to do sort of reviews and take notes, forgetting that I'm supposed to be taking notes because I just got into the game and it was fun to play. Um, and of course then it's like, oh crap, now I have to go back and, and replay the last two hours. But, um, uh, but it's, it's a lot of fun. Uh, we had a, we had a, a lot of fun making that game, um, um, we changed the palettes up some, uh, to, to be more, uh, fantasy, um, to move away from the sci-fi aspects of, uh, Borderlands. Um, so I'm, I'm super interested to get it out in front of, uh, the fans and the public and, um, see how they feel about it. Yeah. You want to talk about the, um, as a sound designer, right. Getting to work on borderlands three, where it's sci-fi, but it has this like, you know, blend of, of, of comedy, um, to where you can do things like embed, you know, the screams of babies into your explosions, right. Like be creative that way. Um, and yeah, like a sound designer's dream vehicles and guns and like monsters and creatures and explosions. Like you, you almost feel like it can't really get any better than that. And then we step into this whole different realm with Wonderlands where it's very fantasy and magical and, um, you know, whimsical. And then, you know, looking back and going like, well, that, you know, I thought Borderlands three was like the sound designer's dream. And now I get to do all this cool stuff with magic, you know, it's just like icing on the cake, but, uh, it did present, um, I think some challenges, like Mark was saying, like we had to completely change. Uh, our approach and and the aesthetic and the palette because it's a different universe, right? Um, it's I mean still you know within the the Borderlands uh, IP and all that, but sonically it's you know it has to be it has to be different, has to feel different. The things that we did on Borderlands Three um, don't necessarily translate uh, sonically and in terms of tone over to Wonderlands. So um, we had to start from scratch there. Um, but yeah, it was a ton of fun to work on a lot of different and new, uh, techniques, sound design techniques that, um, a lot of us really haven't, uh, gotten a lot of time to, to play with before. Um, so, you know, sort of 
flexing those muscles a little bit and exercising um, that creativity has been a blast. Guys, um, I'm fascinated with the uh, the, the stuff you're, you're telling me about Wonderlands. Uh, I, I expect another Gearbox game with the same Gearbox personality, with you know the same humor and the same hit me in the feels that you talked about, Brian. Um, tell me, when should we when should we be looking for uh, for Wonderlands? Wonderlands should be out, uh, I believe, March 25th of 2022. Yeah, it's it's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, we're excited to get it out there and get it in front of fans. Well, uh, we can't wait to see it. Brian, Mark, thank you both for joining us. And uh, we're looking forward to seeing your upcoming work. Yeah, thanks for having us, Andy. We really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks a lot. It's been a blast. Thank you once again, Andy. And thanks to the folks at Gearbox for joining us today. We hope you've enjoyed our coverage of Sound for Video Games. And we hope to bring you more of these kind of conversations in the future. But for now, we're turning our attention back to Hollywood. And it's a little hard to believe, I know, but it is already award season once again. So we're going to be taking the next few weeks to pull together some interviews for our 2022 Academy Awards coverage. Uh, we'll be focusing on some of our favorite categories once again. Best sound, best cinematography, and best animated feature. So before you fill out your Oscar ballot, make sure you're subscribed to us, the Dolby Institute podcast. As always, you can find us wherever you get your podcasts by searching for Dolby. So we'll see you in a few weeks. Until then, thanks again for joining us. This is Sound and Image Lab, brought to you by the Dolby Institute. I'm your host, Glenn Kaiser. Our producer and editor is Michael Coleman. Our executive producers are Amanda Schneider and Jack Ferry, with production support by Taylor Hines. And our production coordinator is Sonny Chen. Thank you for listening. <laughs>